0: Hey, this is God's comic, Brad Stein, and you're listening to Joe Taylor on Faith's Edge. Great program with great people like me. Please listen or you're going to hell. We
1: live with this expectation that God is at work, even if we can't see it. And when things happen to us, people cross our paths, you know, we we intersect with the lives of someone else. These are all opportunities to be jesus in that situation
0: thank you god's comic mr brad stein for the introduction if you've not heard brad stein he is absolutely hilarious but he's not for the faint of heart man he is politically incorrect he's cutting and he will tell you like it is in a way that will make you belly laugh all the way home thank you brad for the introduction hello Welcome to the 126th episode of On Faith's Edge. My name is Joe Taylor, recovering atheist and your servant in Jesus Christ. This is your place to hear conversations about God and living a life of faith in Jesus Christ. I cannot wait for you to hear today's episode with Dr. Michael Heiser. Interestingly enough, I heard Dr. Michael Heiser well before I was a believer in Jesus Christ. Dr. Heiser was on a show called Coast to Coast AM with Art Bell. If you don't know Art Bell, he was a host of the paranormal talk show, AM Coast to Coast. One of the greatest overnight talk show hosts you'll ever hear. Unfortunately, Art Bell passed away several years back. Michael was a regular on Art's show because uh, Michael does not shy away from the opportunity to talk about God and God stuff. You can hear Dr. Heiser and I talk way back on episode 45. That's when he first came on, on Faith's Edge. And now he is back to talk about his new book, Angels. In short, he's pretty much one of the smartest Christians living today. He's a graduate of the University of Pennsylvania and the University of Wisconsin, Madison. He has a PhD in Hebrew Bible and Semitic Studies. He has a dozen years of classroom teaching experience on the college level. He's currently a scholar-in-residence at Logos Bible Software. He's here today, like I said, to talk about his new book, Angels. What the Bible really says about angels is overlooked or filtered through popular myths. He wrote this book to help change that. It's about the loyal members of God's heavenly hosts. And while most people associate them with the word angel, that's just one of the many terms the Bible uses for these supernatural beings. Most people presume all there is to know about angels is what has been passed on in Christian tradition, but in reality, that tradition is quite incomplete and often inaccurate. Today, Dr. Heiser and I talk about what exactly are angels according to the Bible, how are angels active in influencing us in this realm, and what is the ultimate relationship between believers and angels. Mike, where most Christians just get it wrong about angels?
1: I think the fundamental problem is that a lot of of what we think we know about angels as Christians has been filtered to us through Christian, you know, church tradition, all the way back to the Middle Ages, you know, on through the Puritans like Milton's Paradise Lost, you know, literature like that. There are some sort of key elements that believers, you know, really are, are convinced that, you know, the, these items are in the Bible, but when you actually look at Scripture, they're not. <laughs> I don't really know any other way to put it, you know. And so what, what I'm trying to do in the book, the subtitle is actually serious, you know, what the Bible really says about God's heavenly host. And, and by the way, the book is about the good guys, not the bad guys. Uh, the, the bad guys are going to get a follow-up book that's already done. I just don't know when it's going to be out, but uh, these are the good guys, it's what the Bible really says about it. So it sounds goofy, but I'm actually trying to root angel talk in the biblical text.
0: When you say uh, root angel talk, what do you mean by that?
1: I mean, what we say about the members of God's heavenly host conforms to, really derives from what the Bible actually says, as opposed to what it doesn't say, but what you know, church tradition has sort of handed to us at points. I mean, it's not I'm not arguing that everything you know, that you'd hear in church about angels uh, is, is wrong. That's certainly not true. But there are some key ideas. Even, even the terminology that I just used, members of the heavenly host. Okay. I'm, I word it that way because angel is not a term that applies to all members of the heavenly host. Angel is essentially a job description. So what I do in the first chapter of the book, and the book covers Old Testament, New Testament, also intertestamental stuff that that the New Testament writers, you know, dive into at points, is talk about terminology. And and I begin in the Old Testament and I, I divide things up into three semantic categories, three buckets. There are terms that describe the nature of the beings, of the heavenly host, Fancy word for this would be ontological terms, terms that tell you what a thing is. And these are terms like spirits, holy ones, you know, that that sort of thing. And then there are terms that describe rank in hierarchy in the unseen world, in the heavenly world. And uh, a, a, phrase, a good phrase, you know, that belongs here is sons of God. That's a term actually drawn from ancient Near Eastern royal court terminology. And then there are terms that describe functions or tasks, or jobs. And that's where angel actually falls. An angel is a messenger. Not all members of the heavenly host are messengers. They're not all angels in that respect. Uh, another term would be cherubim, seraphim. A Cherubim and seraphim are not angels. These are job descriptions. They're not interchangeable terms. They describe a function. Cherubim and seraphim are throne guardians. That's what the terminology means in the ancient Near Eastern context. Those terms are drawn from, respectively, Mesopotamia and ancient Egypt. And and this is the kind of thing that I try to start the book with, just to awaken people to the fact that, you know, what we tend to do is we tend to take all these biblical terms and sort of smash them together. And when you do that, that's where we get ideas like angels have wings. There isn't a single passage in the Bible that describes angels that uses the, the actual term angels with wings. They are they look like people. They look like men uh, in the Old Testament and the New. Um, they don't. They don't. They're never said to have wings, but we assume that to be the case because we assume that angels are cherubim and seraphim, and those those two critters, if you will, do have wings. And so we conflate these ideas, and then that gets passed down through church tradition. But if you actually, again, you know, if somebody actually, you know, put your feet to the fire and said, "Show me the verse that says angels have wings," good luck. Okay, there there just isn't any. So it's things like this that I'm trying to get people aware of, and and again, just to think more biblically about, you know, the good guys and the heavenly host and who they are and what they do and what their relationship to each other is, and all those sorts of things.
0: You've you've educated me just now, actually. The because I had already assumed the cherubim and the and the seraphim were were types of angels, uh, and they're not angels. They are yeah. a, a different type of heavenly. Being,
1: yeah, you'll you'll never see the word angel in a passage where those those terms are used.
0: So, what are some examples of of angels within the Bible that we can clearly see? Yes, that's an angel.
1: Yeah, that, this is actually a very common uh, duty, and and for me personally, I think one of the more interesting and important ones is Daniel four, where you have. A holy one, again, that's a term that tells you what a thing is, a a member of the heavenly host, a holy one, come down to speak to Nebuchadnezzar. So he's going to be delivering a message. He's also called a watcher uh, in that passage. This is Daniel 4. And watchers, the term means just kind of what it sounds like. They watch people. And that that even has us drift into the whole guardian angel kind of thing. But moving back to Nebuchadnezzar, what does he say to him? He says, hey, you know, I hope you like grass because you're going to be eating it for a while. You know, you're going to go insane for a little while. And here's why. And then he actually says, you know, the, the Holy One says, this is by decree of the watchers, plural. And then a few verses later, it says this is and the same being says this is by decree of the Most High. So what what you have here is you have the delivering of a message. That's what angels do. That's that's the typical angelic function. You know, here, uh, you know, we have different terminology used for the one delivering the message, but he's still delivering a message, and we can see that very plainly. But it's a decree of the Watchers. So this suggests that members of the heavenly host, certain members of the heavenly host, are allowed by God to participate in decision making. And then they inform people of the of those decrees, whatever the decree is. And as I talked about in my earlier book, Unseen Realm, you know, there, there's this idea in Scripture of the, of a divine council, you know, that that God makes members of the heavenly host partners with Him in how He wants things run. And there are occasional passages like this one that, yeah, they include the typical go go tell Nebuchadnezzar what's going to happen to him, you know, the the angel function. But the, it, there's also a little bit more going on that we don't really think about, this this actual participation in making a decision. And it isn't that God runs out of ideas. It's just that the God of the Bible likes to have his intelligent creatures, in, in their this case, you know, his heavenly children, uh, participate with him, be partners in what he wants done. It's easy for us to, to see by analogy because God doesn't need us either. He doesn't need a council. He doesn't need holy ones. He doesn't need angels. He doesn't need any of this stuff. He can do it all himself, but he likes to have his intelligent creatures participate with him, which is a really important lesson you know, theologically.
0: I'm a fan of Frank Peretti's work, uh, especially This Present Darkness and Piercing the Darkness, Mike. He depicts angels as active and influencing our, our own physical realm. Is that an accurate depiction of angels?
1: Yeah, I believe we can say that most people are familiar with this notion of guardian angels. That whole idea has a pretty wide, a much wider matrix of ideas attached to it in Scripture than I think most uh, Christians are really aware of. Let me give you a few examples. And, and again, all of these denote or, or connote, you know, some sort of active participation in the lives of people you know, which is the, you know, the trajectory of your question. So guardianship uh, is really involves watching people, recording, you know, these are all metaphors, obviously, because, you know, the heavenly books of the scriptures are not something that you could tear a page and then you need scotch tape to fix it, okay? The, mm. These are metaphors mm. that designed to, to communicate the idea that God doesn't miss anything. He doesn't miss any details of what happens to us. Uh, He's aware of all of it. So you have watching, you've got recording, uh, you've you've got advocacy. For instance, in Job, a couple times in Job, Job 33 is the one that pops into my head. You know, you, you have this advocacy terminology. There's one point where one of Job's friends says to him, well, you know, to which of the holy ones are you going to appeal? You know, because job is is suffering, and he just throws out this statement. Well, that comes from a much larger you know set of ideas in the ancient Near East that members of God's council, you know members of the heavenly host, advocate to God on behalf of people. They report, you know, here's what's going on, this person's suffering, this person's doing this or that, and God will either send them back with a message or an explanation or, or whatever it is. But you have this advocacy idea, and, it, and it's really attached to individual people. It's part of, again, this, this idea that we have of, you know, we call them guardian angels. But you, you could use another term, but that's the one that sort of sticks. It's most familiar. You know, you have mediation, you know, these sorts of, of things, you know, going on. So this picture where, you know, we, we again presume uh, as Christians that members of the heavenly host have an active take an active interest in us. Attaches you know to both the old and New Testament in, in interesting ways. I mean, you have general verses like Hebrews one fourteen that angels are ministering spirits sent on behalf of those who will inherit salvation, i.e., human believers. So they're sent to assist you know in some way. It's not just messaging; it's assistance. And individual believers can sort of count on that based on that verse. You've got Hebrews thirteen that you need to extend hospitality to people because you might be entertaining an angel unawares. Again. You wouldn't say that if they had wings sticking out of their back, by the way. I mean, it, it's just that in the Old Testament, you know they, they don't know who these who these individuals are unless they do something fairly spectacular. It's not their appearance that gives them away. It's something they do that that's beyond the human realm. So I would say, yeah, you know that that's a biblical idea that you've got this interactivity, you know notion going on between humans, members of the heavenly host, and God.
0: Is it something that we can tap into through some spiritual technique or some some prayer process, whatever it might be, that we can that we can tap into the power of angels or the communicate in communicating with angels?
1: Yeah, that's an important question because if you just had the Old Testament in its own context, you could probably say yes to that. Well, the problem is we have the New Testament. So, you know, we, that sort of cuts it off because let, let's take the advocacy. You know, Job's friend says, to which of the holy ones will you appeal? Well, that, that suggests a conversation, maybe a prayer, maybe some sort of ritual act or something like that. It's really interesting. And again, I think important. That language of mediation goes away in the New Testament, I think, for obvious reasons. Christ is the lone mediator between God and men. He is the advocate, First John. He, he, you know, they don't have to do that stuff anymore because of the work of Jesus. And I think that explains why you never, and I'll include the Old Testament in here, because you, you never really have a passage that sort of lays out or calls for or describes a human being soliciting an angel and telling the angel what to do or asking the angel to do something. I realize that that's kind of a common idea in certain circles of you know, of the church, but there's no Bible for it. You know, again, Hebrews 1 says that they are sent for on behalf of or for the sake of those who will inherit salvation. You could do the fancy, you know, Greek stuff. And I, I have a little bit of this in a footnote in the in the Angels book about the Greek preposition there followed by the accusative case. You will never find an instance of that combination like we have in Hebrews one fourteen, where the prepositional phrase means at the behest of. In other words, Hebrews 1.14 doesn't teach us that angels are here to act at our behest, at our command. The the wrong picture is the angel shows up and looks at his watch and says, I got five minutes, what do you want me to do? Okay, that is not the biblical picture. The the biblical picture, even if you read the verse closely, they are sent, well, who's the sender? That would be God, it's not you, okay? Again, this is a, a fairly common idea. Again, in certain parts of the church, but it does not have biblical roots.
0: It seemed like you said that that angels don't really uh, we don't communicate with angels. But isn't there isn't there some some allusion to that in First Corinthians speaking about the tongues of angels? We're never
1: authorized to initiate, you know, contact. Now, you you bring up an interesting passage: the tongues, you know, of angels. And I, I actually discussed this in a chapter. there's basically two explanations for this that have both been offered by scholars and and you know are borne out in his in discussions in history one is that the this presumed language of angels is Hebrew <laughs> there were lots of you know fans of that uh, because of the old Testament sure that actually that actually doesn't have uh, a lot of precedent for it and the other one is that it's some sort of angelic language. Okay, and some, you know, would would suggest that 2 Corinthians 12 is is perhaps an allusion to this where Paul says, I know a man in Christ you know, who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven and whether he was in the body or not, I don't know. God knows, but he gets caught up to paradise and he heard things that cannot be told which man may not utter. It doesn't really say he heard things in a different language. And if it was a language, that angels spoke, it raises some questions. How would he understand it? In other words, how how would he not know what was said and how would he be unable to tell it? Because you do have plenty of other passages where humans interact with angels. And in those passages, you know, the angel, if we just, you know, look at the text, the angel is using not a language that isn't Greek or isn't Hebrew, but it's in Greek and Hebrew. There's no reference to it being an unintelligible thing. The only the only thing you really have there is in you know First Corinthians 14, where there's this reference to this idea, this, this tongues of angels kind of thing, not to speak to them, but to you know commune in your spirit with God. And so, a better way to to look at it might not there might be that this idea isn't that we're supposed to sort of have a gibberish between us and God. Like, you have to ask yourself, why is that even needed? But maybe it's angelic in the sense that your heart or your spirit, you don't really have words for what you're saying. And there are things, you know, between you and God that, you know, you're somehow other than, you know, verbalizing that you're your heart and your spirit are able to communicate to God. Maybe that's what's in view. So that would be more consistent. But you know, scholars have argued, you know, for you know about this for quite a quite a long time, and I discuss it in the book. But there's there's really no there's no specific, clear, and clear is an important word here, uh, endorsement of that believers should, as a spiritual practice, adopt or come up with some sort of you know gibberish language, uh, and then call that the tongue of, of angels, again, if, if you don't really know what you're, you're saying, because it's gibberish, how would you know it's the tongue of an angel? You know, and, and if it's supposed to be something that's given to you, you ought to still be able to know what it is, if it's you know some sort of spiritual gift. So I think a lot of these statements are not really thought about uh, in, in close detail, and, and some questions that need to be asked tend to not be asked. And there is a a different way, you know, of, of approaching it that I think has some better it's a little more consistent, a little more contextual support. And at the end of the day, God knows your heart, he knows your very thoughts anyway. So you're not being cut off, you know, from God in any way if you don't have this practice. I have friends who, you know, who will, you know, pray in, in, in tongues. And and my view of this is look, if this draws you closer to the Lord, good you know if if you're gonna if you're gonna use this you know I think what Paul was really shooting at is that you know if you're gonna use this as some sort of thing to distinguish you among believers as being close to God or closer to God, well then we have a problem mm. um you know so i I tend to not you know bicker too much you know about uh the practice with people so long as you know, they don't, you know, sort of cross those kinds of theological lines.
0: And and create a Christian hierarchy.
1: Yeah, the, the haves and the have-nots. Right, you know? exactly. And, that, and that's really what Paul is after a lot in these gifting passages, you know, this this creation of a, of a pseudo-hierarchy.
0: I consider myself somewhat of a practical Christian, meaning we prove our faith, our faith without works is dead, our faith is... Uh the true religion is by feeding widows and orphans. I believe that there's a spiritual realm. I think that's that's the Bible's pretty clear, but I don't think a lot about it. I don't have a sense of interaction with this spiritual realm at all.
1: Those are actually those are actually two related but different things. I would say good if you don't think too much about it because I think it's I think Christians have a deeply flawed assumption that God is only active in the spectacular or the out of normal. Mm. The reality is, is that God is active in the unseen. Okay. The the, the providential invisible hand. This is why I, I really like movies. Like it's a wonderful life. Despite the angels wings and Clarence and all that stuff. I, I love the movie and movies like it because when you look back on life, you see where you are, and and again, some of the key moments in life, and you know, Lord willing, their are key spiritual moments, where you either minister to somebody or somebody ministered to you, and 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 you you see the concatenation of small things that accumulate and direct you know the the path. If I'd have you know if I'd have made the right turn instead of the left turn, you know, if I'd have done this instead of that, you know, you you, can, you get that perspective, and and that's wonderful but what really needs to hit us is that i didn't notice any of that while it was happening and that's really how god works so on the one hand it's great that you don't think about it because you're not supposed to this is the way god works but you know on 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 the flip side of that you know the, this notion of of you know kind of i'm trying to remember how you said it you know being in tune you know with it or or, or you know having a sense of it what what i think is is that, that, that's the downside because I do think that that's a shame, but it, it's not contradicting the first thing, you know the first part of the equation, the first side of the coin. I think what we really need is a sense that everything that we do and everything that happens to us, if, it may be, and probably is, intentional in some way, that, in other words, we, we live with this, this expectation that God is at work, even if we can't see it. And when things happen to us, people cross our paths, you know, we, we intersect with the lives of someone else. These are all opportunities to be Jesus in that situation. And, and if, if we just sort of lived with the sense that I'm supposed to be here, okay, that, that this, is, this is meaningful. All these things that we never notice are meaningful. Then I think we would feel more connected to what's happening, you know, in an un, in the unseen realm.
0: So why is it important to understand, as, as Christians, even 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 the non-believing listeners that we have there? Why is it important to understand angels and what they are all about?
1: Yeah, I, I think all these things we've talked about have links. They they serve as templates for how. God looks at us how God wants to use us and how we should think about our own lives. Um, You know, angelology is not sort of this standalone doctrine that has no impact on how we should think about ourselves and our relationship to God. The problem is angelology is never taught that way. And so in, you know, an unseen realm, you know, where I try to give the Genesis to Revelation, you know, overview of how these two realms, you know, intersect in, in a whole variety of ways. This book is sort of drilling down, you know, on one specific group, you know, angels. So, you know, the, the, the family language that God uses of the members of his heavenly host is important. Why is that language repurposed in the New Testament, not of heavenly members, but of human believers? Do you realize that sons of God, which is a fairly common you know, phrase in the Old Testament, is never used in the New Testament of anyone except human believers. Well, that might mean something. And, you know, hint, it does. It refers to a a status in God's family that belongs to humanity. You know, why is it that, you know, we have this this plural language in the Old Testament, let us create humankind in in or as Mm -hmm. our image, you know? Well, God is speaking to the members of his heavenly host. Now, they're they're not co-creators, because the very next verse makes that clear. You know, God is the creator of humanity, not only in that passage, but in every passage, talks about human creation. But somehow the plural language is supposed to to link us to God, to them. And, And the way that happens is we are representatives. So as they represent him in their realm, we represent God in our realm. And we were, by definition, created to be fit for sacred space. That isn't typically how we look at ourselves. It isn't typically how we look at our neighbor. It isn't typically how we look at someone with a different skin color or different political affiliation or, you know, just fill in the blank. Okay? God made every human. Originally, the plan was that all humans be fit for sacred space. Be fit to live in his house with his spiritual family. These two families would be one. Again, if we're thinking in these terms, it you know, it, it does influence or it ought to influence how we act and behave and think not only about ourselves, but about everybody else. Uh, there are all sorts of these ways that that the heavenly host is part of a passage or part of the biblical storyline where the New Testament will either dip into the vocabulary or dip into the metaphor that's being used and repurpose it of, of us. So, uh, again, that's typically not the way angelology is taught, which is a shame, because it really has a significant purpose. I mean, why are believers referred to uh, in Revelation 2 at the end, Revelation 3 at the end, that, that we, will, we will rule the nations? Okay, that we will sit on the Lord's throne you know, with him to rule the nations. Well, who rules the nations now? Well, according to the Old Testament, you have the nations surrendered to sons of God as a judgment at Babel. And that goes terribly wrong because the sons of God, these angels, have free will and they use it, you know, they abuse it, they rebel. They turn Israel to idolatry and Psalm 82 is full of what they're doing bad to their to their populations, to the to the people under their their authority. Uh-huh. And and it's because why does Paul six times link the resurrection to the demise, to the nullification of the authority of the principalities, powers, rulers, thrones? I mean, all the vocabulary Paul has. He links the resurrection to the nullification of that authority. Well, that authority was given way back at the judgment of Babel, but now it's over with but they're not going anywhere they're resisting still and so this is why paul what paul is up against well so they're, they're still trying to hang on to their rulership over the nations but one day they will be displaced by us that's why paul says in first corinthians 6 3 don't you know you know why do you why do you keep arguing among yourselves about dumb stuff mm. don't you know that you're going to judge angels i mean you know it's a throwaway line but it's set in the context of an Old Testament worldview that Paul is, is quite well aware of, um, you know, that, that we as, as Christians, as believers are the newly, or we're going to be the newly reconstituted council of God ruling with our head Christ over the nations. It just doesn't get taught in church. You know, and it, it, it's a shame because the, the way we, we think about angelology is, is very diluted Again, it's filtered through church tradition, but there are a lot of really interesting and and honestly just wonderful ideas that attach to the way the heavenly host is talked about uh, in in both Testaments.
0: Practically, Mike, how do you hope that people, after reading your book, are impacted? How do you hope that they change the way they think? How do you you hope that they change the way they act after reading your book?
1: Yeah, this is a common thread for me. what I want is I want people a you know back into the text again I, I it's not that I think creeds are bad or denominational distinctives are bad or church tradition is bad i don't I don't think those things are bad they are not the text they are not the biblical text, so we need to stop getting our theology from tradition, you know these little bite-sized morsels that tradition gives us and think that's that's what theology, that's what, that's what the Bible teaches. We need to disabuse ourselves of that notion and actually get back into the text. And secondly, in letter B, is I want the ancient Israelite and the first century Jew living in your head as you read Scripture. Uh, you know, we, we talk a lot about context. Well, we need to interpret the Bible in context. Well, that means a lot more than the verse that precedes the one I'm looking at, the one that comes after. It means a lot more than things like the archaeologist saying, hey, look, they used pots and pans back then. You know, <laughs> look, context is about worldview. OK, and this is what, what's what's missing. We we lack an ancient worldview permeating our minds and, and, and affecting the way we read and think. Scripture. The the right context for interpreting the Bible is not the Middle Ages. It's not the Reformation. It's not the Puritans. It's not evangelicalism. It's not fill in the blank with anything that's post-biblical, okay? The right context for interpreting the Bible is the context that produced the thing. This, This was God's decision as to when he had the Bible written, by whom, where they were. You know, we have to have a sense of the ancient worldview, the ancient writer's perspective on things, to really understand our Bible. Because he's writing to an audience that lived it in his own day. So I'm not denying that the Bible was written for us, but it wasn't written to us. And, and we really have to remember that. So those are the things that everything I write, I want people to go back to the text, you know, back to primary sources, okay, to, to sound like an academic here. Uh, and I want the ancient Israelite. In the first century you living in your head rent-free, uh, you will not, if you, if, you, if you start to do this, you will never read your Bible the same way again. It just because you're, you're, you're being intentional about trying to see it not through your eyes or the eyes of your tradition. You're trying to see it through their eyes. And then, you know, figuring out on, on the other side of that, okay, well, here's, here's what they really meant. And how do I apply this to life? You know, then you know it's, that's a familiar exercise to most Bible students.
0: The book is Angels, What the Bible Really Says About God's Heavenly Host by Dr. Michael Heiser, a very, very important book. Mike, can we talk a little bit about your personal faith? Oh, sure. How did you come to believe in Jesus Christ?
1: I came to the Lord when I was 16 uh, in high school. I was the only Christian in my family. And it was really, again, through the result of a friendship I had that began when I was nine uh, years old. There, my parents were divorced, so I, I spent a lot of time at my grandma's house. And next door to grandma was this family. It was a single mom with four kids. Two of them had cystic fibrosis. They just struggled mightily. But this this guy, we were the same age, you know, starting at nine. and We became best friends, and I would be over at their house. And that was my first exposure. To the Bible, you know, they they would read scripture. She would tell Bible stories, you know. And I was I was over there for for some of that, and eventually I wound up, you know, visiting church and doing other things, you know, with them, and I I eventually became a believer when I was 16. So it, that was my path, you know. And I was I was discipled by a former drug addict, you know, who had come to the Lord and had a real heart, you know, for evangelism and discipling kids and. You know, that, that's, that, those are really the core elements of, of the story. Again, I, it was kind of a hostile environment, you know, because I was the only believer in my family. My parents thought I had joined a cult. <laughs> um, no, literally, they did. And it, it, I mean, I, I could fill an hour with sort of comical and, you know, in some cases, tragic episodes of, of just things that happened uh, in high school. But um, because I was a Christian, uh, but I, I mean, I look back now, I don't regret any of that. I mean, at the time it was, you know, it could really be tedious or, you know, frightful or really you know, irritating or whatever, but I, I can see now again, where all of those things just contributed in some way, you know, to, to, to molding me you know, in, in some good way, even though I didn't like it at the time.
0: I find your outlook on faith and how you exercise your faith and practice your faith very intriguing. You do not shy away from an interview <laughs> by invitation. I mean, you you are on, I, I, what, 30? Inter- thir-
1: interviews, interviews are easy if you just be yourself.
0: <laughs> right. Well, it, it's interesting the type of interviews, that, the type of shows that you're on, quite frankly. There's no doubt of your faith. There's no doubt of your belief. There's no questioning your belief that you're a rock-solid believer in Jesus Christ. Uh, but you've done pagan podcasts, you've done coast to coast uh, AM, coast to coast AM, uh, formerly with, with Art Bell and now George Norrie. And I'm not quite certain people would, would look at those, those types of shows as uh, someplace a Christian ought to be hanging out. So what would you, what would you say to that person that says, come come on, come on, Dr. Heiser can't,
1: God forbid that we should hang out with people that need the gospel, or at the very least, just need to think a little bit better about the gospel, or about the Bible, or about Jesus. God forbid that we should <laughs> we should do something <laughs> like that. <laughs> you know, somebody somebody might get saved, or somebody might have a higher view of Scripture when we're all done. You know, right, right. Um, you know, cue, cue cue the scary music. You know, at that point, um, that, that's really what what it's about. You know, I I'm into all sorts of you know strange topics for a reason you know I, I i like to tell people that i've always been interested in anything old and weird and when i became a christian it's like well the bible fit right in there because it's <laughs> old and it's pretty weird <laughs> you know so I, it, it it just you know the scripture you know took on a, a different nature and you know, a different character for me this this sort of thing that became the the central focus of my of my thinking and my study but all those other things, you know, didn't, didn't go away. And, 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 you know, what I try to do is I try to get people into, into a spiritual conversation. Now, s- some of your listeners might find this offensive, but I'll, I'll say it because I've said it live and on, on other interviews. Sometimes you'll have far better spiritual discussions at a UFO conference than you will in church.
0: Mm.
1: Okay, because and there's a very simple reason for that. The people who show up for those things and who are interested in the weird topics, from the pagan to the new ager, you know, whatever, they are primed. Okay, they are primed to discuss big picture things. Is there a God? If there is, what is he like? Why am I here? How do I know that, that he put me here? You know, what, what is this thing about creation? I mean, these are huge big-picture worldview, you know, gut-level foundational theological questions. And it's not that you're going to meet people and just, you know, be able to lead everybody to the Lord. I mean, that happens. But in a lot of cases, what people need to hear who are in who have adopted those worldviews as alternatives is they need to meet a Christian who's not, A, not afraid of them, and B, is not dismissive of the things they really want to talk about. A lot of these people have been burned by Christians, and they're angry. A lot of them, you know, walk away from the faith for the dumbest reasons that that you can imagine. I mean, if I had a dollar for every time I've heard things like, I used to be a Christian until, you know, I read Zechariah Sitchin's Twelfth Planet, or I saw Ancient Aliens, or I listened to this YouTube lecture, and, and, and I, I try not to roll my eyes, you know, because it's like, Look, if if you'd have said, you know, some if you'd have brought up some great tragedy, and you and you're wondering where was God, I mean, I get that, but this is just dumb. <laughs> I mean, this stuff, this stuff is not difficult to to shoot holes in, and 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 really, you know, my my goal is not to you know berate anybody or shoot holes in their worldview, but my goal in those situations is, well, have you ever really thought of, about this thing that? you're, you know, your are the source, you know, this TV show said that it really doesn't work because of this reason over here, you know, and, and they use the Bible to defend this or that, but, you know, the Bible doesn't really say that, or you might, you might have heard the Bible says, says or teaches this or that. Well, not really, because look over here. I mean, if you just engage with them and you don't run away and you don't look at them like they need therapy or, or whatever, or you don't tell them they're possessed or, you know, those are the doctrines of demons or something. You know, you, you don't just do something to put up a wall or drive them away or belittle them. That's a good thing because that's, that's pre-evangelism. You're being, you as a Christian are defying their caricature of what Christians are and how they behave. And that's a good thing. You know, good grief. You know, every place Paul went. You know, he he got into a messy discussion. You know, because he's the he's the apostle of the Gentiles. see the you know, I, I wish we had time to talk about the pagan talk show I was on because I, that's that's the time in my life where I got done with with that interview. I've been on the show. It's called the Voice of Olympus. You could you could Google my website drmsh.com and Voice of Olympus, and you'll find the interviews. The audio terrible, but but it's really worth listening to because. Here's here's a person who could see from my book Unseen Realm and, and Supernatural that, that, wow, there's a shared worldview here. And that fascinated this guy. And he worships the gods of Greece and Rome. And so it's the two of us having a discussion about what I call the Deuteronomy 32 worldview. And that leads very naturally to the gospel. And I thought after I was done with that, it's like, this, is, this must have been what it was like to be Paul. Like every day. Every day he's, he's talking to the people who worship the gods of Greece and Rome.
0: And the truth is, uh, people in those situations—be it the, you know, the the pagan your uh, the pagan talk show, or the the UFO conference, or whatever whatever it might be—they're right where we were before we before we became Christians. Just trying to fill that hole, just trying to fill that that curiosity of what is this all about, and. Our job is to bring them closer to the truth. If it's planting a seed or just sitting down with them for hours and telling the whole story,
1: people just appreciate, you know, again, in those contexts, they appreciate not being attacked, they appreciate not being belittled and dismissed. They may not agree with much of what you say, but if you can have a calm, thoughtful discussion with them, um, again, 99% of them are going to just say, well, this was nice. You know, I, this was kind of fun. You know, I, I, I would do it again, you know? And and that's really what, what you should want. You know, you don't have to be confrontational. You don't have to be condescending and you shouldn't be, but a lot of them, that's what they expect. It's really what they expect from Christians.
0: Since coming to, to believe in Jesus Christ at 16 and, and starting your faith path and kind of planning that planning that flag at that moment. Have you personally had a time where you questioned your faith or even the existence of God?
1: No, I I haven't had one of those. I I did have a sort of, I mean, I'll use the word crisis. It's
0: you know compared to
1: those things. It's sort of a mini crisis, but I remember, you know, uh, I don't know if it was two. It's at least one occasion where, I would just sort of hit a wall in both not only my ability to sort of think about scripture, but also what it seemed there was to think about. Uh, and again, I, I fully recognize I was a geek, I was a nerd. I understand that most Christians aren't into the Bible like I was, you know, or am. I mean, I I, I embrace the geekdom. All right, <laughs> I, I had this creeping notion. But but I didn't know where to turn. And the creeping notion was there has got to be more to this than what I'm being taught or or what I what I presently have under my belt. I just knew there was, but it just seemed like I had hit a wall. And, And in my case, that was a bit disturbing because I had thought at some point I want to do something in ministry, but if I get bored that that's just not good. You know, I, I don't want to mail it in. I don't want to play out the string. Um, I don't want, you know, my attention deflected into in other things. And that, that wouldn't have necessarily been bad. But for me, I, I felt called, you know, to do something that was related to, to the study of scripture. And that really disturbed me. Um, but, you know, the Lord had to just bring, had to just bring other people into my path and give me some direction. I had no direction at all. Not only was I the only Christian in my family, no, nobody else had gone to college. Um, again, I could fill up a comedy routine with, with the stupid stuff that I did that would just show your, you and your listeners how, how utterly clueless uh, I was. So looking back on my life, Providence is a big deal for me because i i have i'd love to be able to to do interviews and say yeah you know i really thought about this or that and i made a wonderful decision and man i knocked that one out of the park i don't have a single moment of that you know it it's just these things off i often had to make decisions because basically god shut every door in front of me so i wouldn't mess it up that's just how my life has been there there was no like intelligent design on my part it was just okay this is looks like what i'm supposed to do because i don't see any other choice and, and i've had a number of those so providence for me is a really big deal in the fiction i write i have two novels providence is a huge deal um I, again i the way i i think you know again the, with all the stuff that i do in terms of the unseen realm um, i think that just brings out again the aspect of providence because most of the time the people in these biblical stories, they don't know what's going on. You, the reader, do. They don't know what's going on. Mm. But God is directing them. And it doesn't always have to be, and it often is not, something spectacular.
0: It's like stumbling from one, stumbling from and to points of grace through your whole life and figuring, and you don't really yeah. realize it until you look back and you think, wow, how did, right. how did I even make it from here to there?
1: Now that can, I mean, and that can be painful. And you can look back in your life and say, "Good grief! If I'd have known what I know now, I could have cut ten years out of this process." <laughs> but, but that isn't the point. That the 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 best part of it is that you can't take credit for it. Mm. Okay? and and in my case, it's like, no, nah, I can't really take credit for <laughs> basically anything. <laughs> you know, in fact, I, I mean, I, I almost messed it up a few times. You know, and God had to step in and and just you know fix it. Um,
0: faith isn't a series of smarter goals or smart goals are they they're just you know it's just uh like i said stumbling from one spot of grace to another spot of grace and wondering how you got there safely yeah mike as we as we wrap up what would you say to that person that is right on faith's edge making that choice to believe or not to believe in god
1: i would say you really need to give careful consideration um to the alternative and what i mean by that is I'm not speaking of you know judgment or hell or anything like that. I, I think you just need to be honest, especially if you're an atheist, you know because all of the arguments that that you can marshal against believing in God, or you know, believing in Jesus, and whatnot. you have to realize that there are multitudes, multitudes, multitudes of people out there who have your same education. They might be a scientist, they might be a, a medical doctor, they might be, you know, you know just a farmer or whatever. But there are lots of people just like you that do not find your arguments against faith in any way persuasive. And the honest person will ask, well, I wonder why that is. You know, we in the modern West, you know, we're enamored with science and intellectual achievement and whatnot. And again, I have a PhD. I, I get that. I've seen that. But the reality is, to, to exclude God from, you know, on, for scientific reasons, for instance, there are tens, maybe hundreds of thousands of PhDs in the hard sciences that don't find any of those arguments to the contrary, you know, against theism. They don't find them in any way persuasive. Why is that? You really only got a couple choices. Either they're lying, and where's the empirical data for that, Mr. Scientist? Or, you know, they're all self-deceived, really? Then how'd they get those degrees? How'd they publish in the same journals? How'd they they get their jobs at institutions? How do they work in in research facilities? You know, it, it just doesn't make sense. So, you know, consider the other side. Ask yourself maybe an uncomfortable question. Why is it that if I think my arguments against belief in God are so good, Why is it that people just like me and maybe people that are a whole lot smarter than me don't find those arguments persuasive at all?
0: I don't think we can say anything more than that. Dr. Michael Heiser, the book is Angels, What the Bible Really Says About God's Heavenly Host. Thank you so much for hanging out with us tonight, man. Yep. Thank you. I really appreciate you, brother. Take care. You can follow Dr. Heiser at drmsh.com. That's drmsh.com. He's also on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. And of course, his work is available on amazon.com. All these links, as well as all the other links, can be found in today's show notes at onfaithsedge.com slash 126. That's onfaithsedge.com slash 126. I love bringing you engaging conversations about faith. If this show entertained you, encouraged you, informed you, or brought value to you in any way whatsoever, will you consider using any Amazon link on onfaithsedge.com? We'll get a modest commission from the purchase, but it won't cost you a penny more. Well, that'll wrap up today's show. Thank you so much, Dr. Michael Heiser, for being with us, and thank you for listening. You mean a lot to me, and you certainly mean a lot to this show. Remember, God is real. He loves you, and so do I. God bless. Thank you for listening to On Faith's Edge. You can subscribe to the show via iTunes, Stitcher Internet Radio, or your favorite podcast app on Android, Apple, or Windows devices. To reach out to Joe or leave comments about the show, visit onfaithsedge.com. You're important to us, and we would love to hear from you.